Hi, this is book three, episode 34 of Puritans Read, where we read great Puritan works, authors, and biographies. Continuing today, The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson, chapter 12, showing the mystic union between Christ and the saints. My beloved is mine, and I am his. Song of Solomon 2.16 In this Song of Songs, we see the love of Christ and his church running towards each other in a full torrent. The text contains three general parts. Number one, a symbol of affection, my beloved. Number two, a term of appropriation, is mine. Number three, a holy resignation, I am his. Doctrine, that there is a conjugal union between Christ and believers. The apostle, having treated at large of marriage, winds up the whole chapter thus. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Ephesians 5.32 What is closer than union? What sweeter? There is a twofold union with Christ. Number one, a natural union. This all men have, Christ having taken their nature on him and not that of the angels, Hebrews 2.16. But if there is no more than this natural union, it will give little comfort. Thousands are damned, though Christ is united to their nature. Number two, a sacred union. By this, we are mystically united to Christ. The union with Christ is not personal. If Christ's essence were transfused into the person of a believer, then it would follow that all that a believer does should be meritorious. But the union between Christ and a saint is, firstly, federal. My beloved is mine. God the Father gives the bride. God the Son receives the bride. God the Holy Ghost ties the knot in marriage. He knits our wills to Christ and Christ's love to us. Secondly, effectual. Christ unites himself to his spouse by his graces and influences. Of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. John 1, 16. Christ makes himself one with the spouse by conveying his image and stamping the impress of his own holiness upon her. This union with Christ may well be called mystic. It is hard to describe the manner of it. It is hard to show how the soul is united to the body and how Christ is united to the soul. But though this union is spiritual, it is real. Things in nature often work insensibly, yet really. Ecclesiastes 11.5 We do not see the hand move on the dial, yet it moves. The sun exhales and draws up the vapors of the earth, insensibly, yet really. So the union between Christ and the soul, though it is imperceptible to the eye of reason, is still real. 1 Corinthians six seventeen. Before this union with Christ, there must be a separation. The heart must be separated from all other lovers, as in marriage there is a leaving of father and mother. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Psalm forty five ten. 
So there must be a leaving of our former sins, a breaking off the old league with hell before we can be united to Christ. Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? Hosea 14.8 Or, as it is in the Hebrew, with sorrows. Those sins which were looked on before as lovers are now sorrows. There must be a divorce before a union. The purpose of our conjugal union with Christ is twofold. Number one, cohabitation. This is one purpose of marriage, to live together, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, Ephesians 3:17. It is not enough to pay Christ a few complimentary visits in his ordinances. Hypocrites may do so, but there must be a mutual associating. We must dwell upon the thoughts of Christ, he that dwelleth in God, 1 John 3, 24. Married persons should not live apart. Number two, fructification. Number two, fructification. That ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Romans 7, 4. The spouse bears the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Galatians 5, 22. Barrenness is a shame in Christ's spouse. This marriage union with Christ is the most noble and excellent union. Firstly, Christ unites himself to many. In other marriages, only one person is taken, but here millions are taken. Otherwise, poor souls might cry out, Alas, Christ has married so-and-so, but what is that to me? I am left out. No, Christ marries thousands. It is a holy and chaste polygamy. Multitudes of people do not defile this marriage bed. Any poor sinner who brings a humble, believing heart may be married to Christ. Secondly, there is a closer union in this holy marriage than there can be in any other. In other marriages, two make one flesh, but Christ and the believer make one spirit. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Now, as the soul is more excellent than the body and admits of far greater joy, so this spiritual union brings in more astonishing delights and ravishments than any other marriage relationship is capable of. The joy that flows from the mystic union is unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1, 8. Thirdly, this union with Christ never ceases. Thrice happy they whom an unbroken bond unites. Horace. Other marriages are soon at an end. Death cuts asunder the marriage knot. But this conjugal union is eternal. You who are once Christ's spouse shall never again be a widow. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Hosea 2.19 to speak properly, our marriage with Christ begins where other marriages end, at death. In this life, there is only the contract. The Jews had a time set between their engagement and marriage, sometimes a year or more. In this life, there is only the engagement and contract. Promises are made on both sides, 
and love passes secretly between Christ and the soul. He gives them smiles of his face, and the soul sends up her sighs and drops tears of love. But all this is only a preliminary work and something leading up to the marriage. The glorious completing and solemnizing of this marriage is reserved for heaven. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation 19.9, and the bed of glory perfumed with love, where the souls of the elect shall be perpetually consoling themselves. Then shall we ever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So death merely begins our marriage with Christ. Use 1. If Christ is the head of the mystic body, Ephesians 1.22, then this doctrine beheads the Pope, that man of sin who usurps this prerogative of being the head of the church, and so would defile Christ's marriage bed. What blasphemy this is! Two heads are monstrous. Christ is head, as he is husband. There is no vice-husband, no deputy in his place. The Pope is the beast in Revelation, Revelation 13, 11. To make him head of the church, what would this be but to set the head of a beast upon the body of a man? Use 2. If there is such a conjugal union, let us test whether we are united to Christ. Number 1. Have we chosen Christ to set our love upon, and is this choice founded on knowledge? Number 2. Have we consented to the match? It is not enough that Christ is willing to have us, but are we willing to have him? God does not so force salvation upon us that we shall have Christ whether we want to or not. We must consent to have him. Many approve of Christ, but do not give their consent. And this consent must be, firstly, pure and genuine. We consent to have him for his own worth and excellence. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Psalm 45, 2. Secondly, a present consent. Now is the accepted time. 2 Corinthians 6, 2. If we put Christ off with delays and excuses, perhaps he will stop coming. He will leave off wooing. His spirit shall no longer strive, and then... Poor sinner, what will you do? When God's wooing end, your woes begin. Number three, have we taken Christ? Faith is the bond of the union. Christ is joined to us by his spirit, and we are joined to him by faith. Faith ties the marriage knot. Number four, have we given ourselves up to Christ? Thus the spouse in the text says, I am his, as if she had said, All I have is for the use and service of Christ. Have we made a surrender? Have we given up our name and will to Christ? When the devil solicits by a temptation, do we say, We are not our own, we are Christ's, our tongues are his, we must not defile them with oaths, our bodies are his temple, we must not pollute them with sin. If it is so, it is a sign that the Holy Ghost has produced this blessed union between Christ and us. Use 3. 
is there this mystic union? Then from that we may draw many inferences. Number one, see the dignity of all true believers. They are joined in marriage with Christ. There is not only assimilation, but union. They are not only like Christ, but one with Christ. All the saints have this honor. When a king marries a beggar, by virtue of the union, she is ennobled and made of the blood royal. As wicked men are united to the prince of darkness, and he settles hell upon them as their inheritance, so the godly are divinely united to Christ, who is king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19:16. By virtue of this sacred union, the saints are dignified above the angels, Christ is the Lord of the angels, but not their husband. Number two, see how happily all the saints are married. They are united to Christ, who is the best husband, the chiefest among 10,000. Song of Solomon 5.10 Christ is a husband that cannot be paralleled. Firstly, for tender care. The spouse cannot be as considerate of her own soul and credit as Christ is considerate of her. He careth for you. 1 Peter 5, 7 Christ has a debate with himself, consulting and projecting how to carry on the work of our salvation. He transacts all our affairs. He attends to our business as his own. Indeed, he himself is concerned in it, He brings fresh supplies to his spouse. If she wanders out of the way, he guides her. If she stumbles, he holds her by the hand. If she falls, he raises her. If she is dull, he quickens her by his spirit. If she is perverse, he draws her with the cords of love. If she is sad, he comforts her with promises. Secondly, for ardent affection. No husband loves like Christ. The Lord says to his people, I have loved you. And they say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Malachi 1, 2. But we cannot say to Christ, Wherein hast thou loved us? Christ has given real demonstrations of his love to his spouse. He has sent her his word, which is a love letter, and he has given her his spirit, which is a love token. Christ loves more than any other husband. A. Christ puts a richer robe on his bride. He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 In this robe, God looks on us as if we had not sinned. This robe is as truly ours to justify us as it is Christ's to bestow on us. This robe not only covers, but adorns. Having on this robe, we are reputed righteous, not only as righteous as angels, but as righteous as Christ, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. B. Christ gives his bride not only his golden garments, but his image. He loves her into his own likeness. A husband may have a dear affection for his wife, but he cannot stamp his own image on her. 
If she is deformed, he may give her a veil to hide it, but he cannot put his beauty on her. But Christ imparts the beauty of holiness to his spouse. Thy beauty was perfect through my comeliness. Ezekiel 16, 14. When Christ marries a soul, he makes it fair. Thou art all fair, my love. Song of Solomon 4, 7. Christ never thinks he has loved his spouse enough till he can see his own face in her. C. Christ discharges those debts which no other husband can. Our sins are the worst debts we owe. If all the angels should contribute money, they could not pay for one of these debts. But Christ frees us from these. He is both a husband and a surety. He says to justice what Paul said concerning Onesimus. If he oweth thee aught, put that to mine account. I will repay it. Philemon 18. D. Christ has suffered more for his spouse than ever any husband did for a wife. He suffered poverty and ignominy. He who crowned the heavens with stars was himself crowned with thorns. He was called a companion of sinners so that we might be made companions of angels. He was regardless of his life. He leaped into the sea of his father's wrath to save his spouse from drowning. E. Christ's love does not end with his life. He loves his spouse forever. I will betroth thee unto me forever. Hosea 2.19 Well may the apostle call it a love which passeth knowledge. Ephesians 3.19 Number 3. See how rich believers are. They have married into the crown of heaven, and by virtue of the conjugal union, all Christ's riches go to believers. Communion is founded in union. Christ communicates his graces, John 1:16. As long as Christ has them, believers shall not be in want. And he communicates his privileges, justification, glorification. He settles a kingdom on his spouse as her inheritance. Hebrews 12:28. This is a key to the apostle's riddle, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. 2 Corinthians 6:10. By virtue of the marriage union, the saints have an interest in all Christ's riches. Number 4. See how fearful a sin it is to abuse the saints. It is an injury done to Christ. For believers are mystically one with him. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Acts 9, 4. When the body was wounded, the head, being in heaven, cried out. In this sense, men crucify Christ afresh. Hebrews 6, 6. Because what is done to his members is done to him. If Gideon was avenged upon those who slew his brethren... Will not Christ much more be avenged on those that wrong his spouse? Judges 8.21 Will a king tolerate having his treasure rifled, his crown thrown in the dust, his queen beheaded? Will Christ bear with the affronts and injuries done to his bride? 
The saints are the apple of Christ's eye. Zechariah 2.8 And let those who strike at his eye answer for it. I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with sweet wine. Isaiah 49.26 Number 5. See the reason why the saints so rejoice in the word and sacrament. Because here they meet with their husband, Christ. The wife desires to be in the presence of her husband. The ordinances are the chariot in which Christ rides, the lattice through which he looks forth and shows his smiling face. Here Christ displays the banner of love. Song of Solomon 2, 4. The Lord's Supper is nothing other than a pledge and earnest of that eternal communion which the saints shall have with Christ in heaven. Then he will take the spouse into his bosom. If Christ is so sweet in an ordinance, when we have only short glances and dark glimpses of him by faith, oh then how delightful and ravishing will his presence be in heaven when we see him face to face and are forever in his loving embraces. This has been Book 3, Episode 34 of Puritan's Read. We read The Godly Man's Picture by Thomas Watson and the first half of Chapter 12.